Episode number 96. Stand-up comedian Josh Denny is in the Springs. We would get together and have like these slumber parties when my parents were all out being neglectful. Here's a funny scenario. Um, imagine this. Not carrying gear. <laughs> what pisses me off? What don't I like? Um, that's, that's what I want people to do. Let's just go have a good time with people. And All right, so I got uh, Josh Denny in the Springs. How's it going? Good, man. How are you? I'm good. I'm Th- good. Good. Thanks so much for hanging out. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, so we're just going to kind of start with a little bit of your comedy history and background and okay. how you ended up here in lovely sounds Colorado like I, Springs. Sounds like I was professionally trained. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Juilliard, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah Juli- a little bit School of Juilliard. Of NYU, <laughs> uh, fine arts theater, right, you, you right. know. The, the the accredited Tisch School for the Performing Arts. <laughs> I went there for about uh, 15 minutes on a visit one time. <laughs> Got Never a t-shirt, again. moved on. Yeah, yeah. All right, so how did you get into this uh, stand-up comedy world? What's the background there? Yeah, you know, I... Um I, I was, it was something I was always into when I was a kid, you know, and I was always in, sort of enamored with comedy and um, comedy movies. I was a huge Robin Williams fan as a kid. I had an aunt that I was very close with, and she'd never had kids of her own. So we would get together and have like these slumber parties when my parents were all out being neglectful. And she would, you know, kind of take me through all her favorite comedy stuff from the 60s and 70s. So I kind of grew up with, uh, with a real um, affection for comedy. And then um, it was something where I was doing music in high school, performing, and I had a bunch of bands. The bands didn't work out. And then one of my buddies was like, you should do stand-up comedy, man. You're way funnier than you're talented as a musician. So uh, I did my first open mic in like January of 2007, and I've been going ever since. Nice. And where was the open mic? Where uh, were you Rochester, Minnesota. Rochester, Minnesota. Yeah, it was one of those things that was weird. Like, uh, you know, I was, I was thinking like, oh, I'm not ready for the, for the big leagues of Minneapolis yet. I was living in <laughs> Minneapolis. So like, let me go out of the city and find a place. And then, of course, I think all my friends were expecting me to eat shit because I had like 30 people come down with me to watch or follow me down to watch me do my first set ever. And uh, it went okay, but I didn't understand anything about the world of comedy. So like I had spent about a month and a half writing 30 minutes of material because all I knew was premium blend and right, right. and the half hour specials. And I was like, well, you need a half hour if you're going to do comedy. So I went down there and I go, how much time do I get? They're like three minutes. And that's if you're good at two minutes. <laughs> so um, I was like, I guess I'll do two jokes. You know, when I started, I was really long winded and. And, um, yeah, but it went okay. And then the comedians there were like, Hey man, come out to these other shows. And, you know, before, before I knew it, I was doing seven open mics a week. Nice. Yeah. And that was just in and around the Minneapolis Minneapolis area. Yeah. I mean, that scene was huge when I started, I shouldn't say huge. It was huge in terms of the number of nights you could get up. I mean, there was a, there was an open mic every night, Yeah. but there were about 20 to 30 comics in the city. And I went back there and did a, uh, an album recording a couple years ago and then i think i did shows the year after in 2013 yeah i did in 2013 and the open they have an open mic after their book show at eight o'clock at this one of the open mic clubs i did was the comedy corner underground in minneapolis and their 10 o'clock open mic had like 150 comedians signing up to get on like that scene has just exploded 
and it's insane. That's like, crazy. It's hard to get time because there's so many comedians. Like yeah. when I started, we almost always were guaranteed time because there would be about 15 of us total. Right, right. And you'd get time based on if you had friends or whatever, they'd bump you up a couple minutes or, you know, if you got to know the guys pretty well, they'd give you a little extra time. But yeah, it's, it's gotten insane there. Yeah. So what was the, the preparation for you for that first open mic it sounds like you wrote out quite a bit of, of material. Yeah, I didn't really write it. I really just kind of rehearsed it. Yeah. It was almost like learning a play, like lines for a play. And a lot of my jokes early on, I was just telling Landry this on the way over, a lot of my jokes early on were more, more like sketches. Right, right. <laughs> but I didn't know how to make sketches or film them. So I was basically narrating these crazy sketch ideas to the audience. I didn't have like jokes set up punchline back then. It was really just like, here's a funny scenario. Right. Imagine this. And I did that for the first two or three years I was a comedian. And so how did the, cause it sounds like you had musical backgrounds, some acting, some writing. Yeah. What was, what was it about standup specifically that kind of got its hooks into you that you continued to do it? Not carrying gear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know. You know, it was, it's tough because I, I was really into music. My, my, both my parents were, my mom was creative. She was a writer when she was young and my dad was a country musician and I got, I was playing music from the time I was seven. So it was sort of bittersweet, like kind of putting that away and saying, I'm no longer going to play music, but I've got to find something. And I went like a year or whatever, just being in that creative funk until I just was like riffing with something on the phone with my buddy Gary and we were just cracking up. And I thought, man, this is, this would be funny as a, like a stand-up routine. And that, that had never kind of chimed with me before. You know, I was always a guy that was kind of funny off the cuff, but I never felt like I could do it on purpose. And once that first thing happened, then I just started going through my brain and going, all right, what else, what else is there that would be funny if I shared it? Right. And right. then that just turned into the first half an hour of stuff. Nice. Yeah. So now it sounds like you kind of cut your teeth comedy wise, watching funny movies with your aunt. Mm -hmm. Once you got into the world of stand-up, who were some of the... Who were some of the heroes for you early on? Well, early on, I, you know, it's unpopular to say, but I'd say the first, the 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 first comic that that was kind of like generational for that time, because this is two thousand six, so it was like Dane Cook, right? Watching Dane Cook and be like, oh, you can just kind of talk about silly shit. Um, when I was younger, my favorite stand-up comedian was Martin Lawrence, um, and I used to stay up and watch his like HBO specials and stuff late at night. You know, I would sneak back up and go watch them. Because I wasn't allowed to watch them. Um, but the one that really kind of hit me was I was in, it was like December of 2006. I was in um, West Palm Beach and I saw, I was, wor I was working for a company called Crocs Shoes at the time. And I was traveling all over and opening new stores. And um, we were in West Palm, or was it uh, Fort Lauderdale? No, West Palm Beach. We were there doing an event and we were at dinner and we saw there was a, a thing for Dave Attell. He was performing like right across from the restaurant we were eating at. And I was like, we should go to that. So we put it on the expense account and fucking, <laughs> you know, spent like 200 bucks in drinks and stuff and, and went and watched the show. But, you know, it was a second show Saturday. And so Attell did like three hours. Oh, my God. That I mean, guy is one of the, he's the, the best. best. And still yeah. to this day, he's the best. Right. In terms of guys who are just clever, quick, off the cuff. When you talk about somebody who's born to be a comedian. Right. Dave Attell. And from what I've heard, I've never had the pleasure of, of meeting him, but his work ethic 
comics that I've met who know him or know of him, the guy works constantly. Like when he's in New York, yeah. he's hitting mics, he's writing constantly. When he's in LA, he'll come to LA to take a meeting and he'll end up doing like six shows yeah. in one night. Yeah. Like it's unreal. And and he's still got it. Yeah. Like he's been doing this for 30 plus years or whatever. And the other thing I'll tell you is like when I first started, um, back it was back in the MySpace days, I was pretty good with social media in the very beginning. And I guess still now to some extent. But I had built up a pretty big following on MySpace with some videos and stuff. And I remember reaching out to Dave when he got his HBO special and being like, dude, this was long overdue and you're one of my favorite comedians and I probably would have never done it if it wasn't for seeing you. He messaged me back personally and was like, thanks, man. I appreciate it. And, you know, stick with it. You know, if you if you enjoy it and you love it, like it's going to take a long time. So be ready. Yeah. You know, and I was just like, that's so cool, man. That's crazy. Guy at that level being able to to connect. Yeah, and um, and his opener was Sean Rouse. I don't know if you know Sean. I know the but, name. I can't yeah. place it. But Sean was like so dark and so dirty and, and also so calm. And I was just like, man, the dynamic between the two of them was just, you know, I saw, I felt like I saw four hours of the best stand-up comedy you, you could ever see. Yeah. And it was also kind of opening me up to this world of like club comedy that I had never really watched. And this like, oh, this is way different than TV. This is way better. <laughs> so, um, and Sean, I've actually gotten to work with several times. And, you know, he, he, I think he was living in LA for a while and I got to see him quite a bit. And um, he was the first person to give me advice that night. I was, uh, that night I asked him at the bar, um, like as Dave was finishing his set, I was like, you know, if I wanted to do stand-up comedy, what advice would you have? And he said, well, do as many shows as you can and don't steal anybody else's shit. <laughs> That that's was great it. advice. It's just like that's, the only advice you ever need. Yeah, that's gold. Yeah, do as many shows as you can and don't take anybody's shit. Yeah. And, and that was it. So now when you started in 07, when did you start actually, for, I, guess, I can't think of a better way to put this, become a comic? When did you start going on the road? I'll when let you, you know when to, it happens. <laughs> so it's still kind of a work in progress <laughs> it at is, this point? It's that way for everybody. I yeah. mean, I think everyone has a different definition of what becoming a comic is. Right. You know, I, I did re really well with my stock um, with Crocs. And so a year into doing comedy... I took all my stock out and was like, I'm retired. I'm just going to do stand-up full-time. And I went and did a bunch of like shitty one-nighters on the road for a year and lost all my money. Right, right. And I was like, oh, I need to go back to work. And then I moved to L.A. So, um, you know, I think it's, it's just different, you know. And I think it constantly changes. For some people, it's when you get on the I got on the road like six months into doing comedy, maybe less. Wow. I met up with some other guys and we started this tour called the verbally vicious tour and you know we were going to be the edgiest you know comedians you could possibly find and and but we went out and we were able to sell a lot of dates and we worked a ton of shows around the midwest and did every small town bar you could imagine and that was a hell of an experience so you know for me now i think my goals are different than just getting on the road and doing as many shows as i can it's more about writing and creating content that people like and that i think will stand the test of time and you know that's that should be why you tour. Yeah, I mean that's just my opinion, but that's what you're trying to get better at, and that's what you're trying to create and produce. And it's different now than it was when a guy like Dave did it. Like right. reaching that level is being able to work 52 weeks a year on the road. Right now, I don't know that you could even sustain an adequate living doing that. Right, unless you're at the Louis C.K. level or whatever, where you're doing theaters. Right. So to me, I, I think that's. Once you get to that point, I think that's when you can call yourself a comedian. Yeah. When you can fill seats by putting your name on a marquee and selling tickets somewhere, and you can sell a thousand of them, yeah. then you're a comedian. I mean, do you think that that goal is attainable 
just with stand-up? Because I know no. you're involved in a lot of other no. creative outlets. I mean, it could be. You know, there's a guy right now who's really blown up and who's really not done a lot of television. It's Tom Segura. Oh, right. And Tom's just an incredible comedian. And Brian and Regan as well. Regan's the same way, too, yeah. yeah. I mean, Regan had, I think, some guest stars on sitcoms and stuff way back in the day, but... Yeah, I mean, Jim Gaffigan, same way. I mean, his TV stuff's sort of coming after he spent 20 years in the game. Yeah. So, you know, I think the hardest thing is just sort of looking around, and there are a lot of people who they'll get those breaks at eight years in, 10 years in. But when you look at the guys that are great, like Bill Burr, Louie, Jim Norton, they don't get there until they're 20 years in. Right. So my expectation is I've got 10 more years now to try to get to that level. Yeah. So hopefully by 2025, I'm doing some kind of theaters and, you know, I've got enough to kind of keep going that way. Yeah. But, but to me, you know, I, it's kind of all for nothing unless you're doing stuff that people will, like I, I watched a George Carlin special the other day, like one from 76 or something. One of the very first ones, he still had brown hair yeah. to give you perspective. <laughs> and I felt like, dude, you could air this right now and it would be relevant to today's society. Yeah. Just giving liberal shit, talking about feminism, talking about a woman's right to choose. And it's like, on one hand, you go, how the fuck have we not progressed in any of these things in <laughs> so 40 depressing. years? Yeah. But on the other hand, you go, wow, how ahead of his time was this guy? And how, how on the money was he with his assessment of everything? Yeah. Um, and it was, it's just, it was just great to see. And so that's what you aspire to. I, I don't think anybody will ever get there. But yeah. you know, to be able to do stuff that I think people can find 20, 30 years later and go, oh, I like that. Yeah. You know, that's the goal. So this is kind of a cheesy question, but I'm always sort of fascinated by the process of stand-up. So much of it is in the moment. And it's one of the few art forms that you can't rehearse it unless you're on stage in front of strangers talking about it. You can practice your guitar in your bedroom. You can rehearse a play, all those sorts of things. At what point did it feel like you discovered kind of who you were on stage and what material appealed to you kind of at a gut level? You know, this is who, who Josh Denny is when I get up on stage. The, the inevitable, how did you find your voice question? I, I hated to say it, but yeah. that's the one. No, yeah. no, yeah. I get it. Um, and I, I still think that's a work in progress too, but I, I can tell you the moment uh, there's a joke that I do that's on my, I'll do it tonight, obviously, but there's a, um, a joke that's on my 2012 album called Cinnamon American. And it was a, I was working on a bit where I was trying to figure out how can I talk about how absurd the concept of African American is to me? You know, cause I, I grew up with a black stepdad for like three or four years, uh, stepdad figure, my, they weren't married, but, um, he hated the term. He felt like it was sort of an asterisk next to American. Yeah. And I was like, okay, that I get. Like, that makes sense to me. But it was amazing to me. And it was sort of like, is, is black that bad of, a, of an adjective to where we came up with this third removed, com, com, you know, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like label right. that we would use. And um, I, when I came up, I was doing a lot of black rooms, like all black rooms in the Midwest, Chicago, Minneapolis, um, mostly because they were easy to get on if you were a white guy and you weren't afraid to do them. <laughs> but um, I did a lot of black rooms and I couldn't get that bit to take. I couldn't get it to work. And then I came up with uh, one night I was just on stage and I made it my own. And I started talking about the word ginger the same way I was talking about you know, the N word and right. how you, how do you go from the N word <laughs> to something that's to me, you're saying the same thing, but it just, it's technically better. Um, and it killed 
And I was like, this is the stuff I want to do. Yeah. I want to take something benign and use it to discuss something very malignant. Right. And I want to make the audience have to be intelligent enough to put the two together. So, it, so now the goal is to have, you know, an hour long special that is a lot of those things yeah. where I am sort of backing you into a very deep, heavy subject matter, but you don't know you're going there until you're already laughing. What was it, was it kind of an epiphany to have that moment yes. happen on stage? Yes, it was, it was that moment of like, this is, these are the tunes, if you will. Right. Like there was probably a point for Led Zeppelin where they were like, these are the, t these are the tunes. This is how we write. Yeah. This is how it is going forward. And that was the joke for me that was like, no, this is it. This is this comparing something where you don't understand what I'm talking about until three quarters of the way through the joke. That's my vibe. Nice. That's what I like to do. Now is your, is your writing similar to that as well? That's what it's become. Yeah. yeah. To where everything is sort of like, okay, you know, a great example would be, I want to talk about feminism. I think feminism is dangerous. And part of the reason I think it's dangerous is because we kind of let it slide and it reminds me of times in history where maybe people let certain things slide and then we didn't realize until later on that it's way too late. <laughs> you know what I mean? So uh, I don't want to spoil it because it's a new <laughs> bit that I'm working on and I'll do, I'll do it tonight as well. But, yeah, yeah. you know, but it's sort of like, so how do I take that concept? And now, yeah, it, that's what initiates the process is like, what pisses me off? What don't I like? And how can I tell the audience what I'm thinking in an indirect way. Yeah. Like a lot of comics will go on stage and they'll rant and rave and they go, I hate this. This is why I hate this. Um, this is why this sucks. And sometimes I'll go up and go, I think this is great. I think this is fantastic. I think it's empowering just like when the Nazis did it, you know, <laughs> right. essentially like that, yeah. that sort of misdirection and say, so there's there, it almost creates these two sides where they go, wait a minute, is he saying that feminism is as bad as the Nazis or is he saying that the Nazis weren't that bad like, right. and that maybe we should have agreed with them? And I like to not answer those questions. Right, I like right. to leave the audience with that and go, oh my God, like we don't really know what he's saying. Yeah. Like I have a joke where I compare, um, you know, I'll talk about, uh, it's very interesting to me that, that we overlook the fact that there's a huge part of the population that's still very homophobic huge part of the population and um i talk about talking with friends and i go what can you have against gay people they're just trying to love who they want to love and and but the argument could be made so are pedophiles and nobody's cutting them any slack and which is which is you know it's a factual double standard and the and the observation isn't to say pedophilia should be legal too it's sort of to say you used to think and many of you still think of the two as one and the same even though they're not, and we're very, very far away from right, that. right. You know what I mean. So I, I try to take the sort of the mistakes of our past and use them to show people where we're about to make the same mistakes over again. Well, and I would imagine that developing material like that, you know, with the African American example, the the feminism example, the pedophilia example, right? Those in and of themselves are really dicey topics. Of course. So, uh, is there a point where you're like, I? I can't massage this enough to make it work. No. Or do you just, no, that's, that's you where you your head drill. There. That's where you drill through and you just got to find the way to make it funny. Yeah. I mean, I really believe anything can be made funny and that's the challenge, right? I think the minute you go, I can't do that is where you start to quit as a comedian and yeah. as a creative person. When you go, I can't just make that. I cannot make that funny for people. You quit. Yeah. I mean, think about Louie uh, going on SNL and talking about 
kid fucking in his open monologue right and basically saying like how good is it that people keep doing it and getting caught right like you just can't quit it it's so good and and he's like well thank you for watching my very last time hosting snl but it's like the balls to do that that's a guy who said i think i can make this funny and i'm gonna do it on the most important statue of comedy in the world yeah on live television like, that's a dude who really believes that well, he can it, make anything funny. And not only that, and this sounds twisted in that context, but but that type of material, you know, if you go to any open mic in any, you know, shitty dive bar in the country, you're going to hear you're going to hear folks attempting that. To oh, be everybody edgy. wants to do it. Right. But what, what he's able to do is he does it smartly. Yes. And I know that sounds weird. No, but there has to be an intelligence to it. Right. You know, that anybody can walk up and just go, you know, kid fucking, right? awesome (laughs) you know and there is that there and that was me in the beginning i was very much trying to get into the shock of it yeah but then it's sort of like you get out and you do enough of these shows you're like everybody's doing that why do you think that is early on in in, not that you're a a, you know because you thirty year veteran because you can yeah because it's the only place you can no 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 and it's also why do you think young comedians oftentimes go to that show that's what i'm saying because you can Name me another art form where you can oh, go I up see, and I say shit like saying. that or, yeah. co- or th- share those ideas. Yeah. Not only is it accepted, but in many times it's rewarded. But I think there's a very big difference between the kid at the open mic who's trying to do an abortion joke and the Daniel Tosh abortion joke or the Anthony Jeselnik abortion joke. I mean, those are guys who take that concept and they go, how do I trick people with, into liking this and then drop the horror on them? halfway through right um that's where the tact comes in and that's where the brilliance comes in that's why there there aren't a hundred daniel toshes there's only the one yeah you know there's and there's not a million louis there's only the one you know bill burr on a couple albums ago did a joke about being in a sidewalk sale from um, like a, a bake sale and fantasizing about driving his car and murdering all the people on the side of the road. Now, if he sat down in a therapy session and told his doctor that, they'd have him committed. Right. But he did it into a microphone, and people were laughing hysterically. Yeah. You know, and that's the thing. I think you have to tap into the part where people agree, where they understand, like, yeah, that's a good point. And you have to understand when you're tackling those subjects or if you're doing a comparison, how do, what's the, what side are they going to be on? And how do I either lead them into a false sense of security that, that I'm on their side right? and then trick them by teaching them that they're not. Yeah. And that's where the humor is. Or how do I tell them that their side is wrong and how do I make it funny enough to make them question what, whether they're on the right side or not? Yeah. You know, I have this kind of new chunk of material that kind of starts out from the place of like, you know, this, this new thing that everybody's saying is like, well, you, we want to be on the right side of history, you know? And, and I, my immediate reaction was like, do you think anybody ever stepped out and said, we're definitely going to be on the wrong side of history here, guys. Let's keep going. Right. Like they all thought they were right. Yeah. The crusades, we thought we were right. So did the people we killed millions of the Mongols thought they were right. Hitler thought he was right. None of these guys were like, we got a 10% chance, but we're going to go anyway. Right. So like, you know, this concept of like, we're on the right side of history. Like, yeah, but that also makes you the same as every crazy maniacal person ever. They all thought they were on the right side of history. Right, right. Everybody, everybody who comes up with the crazy shit is like, we're going to change things and we're going to be on the right side of history. Yeah. So it's weird. We live in this world where people look at the conservative side of America and they think that's where the extremism is. And I have the complete opposite perspective. I think the extremism is on the left side where 
where people are so passionate that they're right, that they refuse to hear other people's ideas. They refuse to listen to the other side. And they're like, no, everybody, everybody that doesn't think two people of the same sex should be married should be killed. And you're just like, whoa, that's a little extreme. Like maybe we sit down and we talk about the importance of love, but you're, you're like, if you don't get gay marriage, you should just be murdered. Okay. That's a pretty extreme way to do it. Right. So, um, you know, yeah, it's just, it amazes me how much people become things that they say they claim to hate. Yeah. Um, in the pursuit of, of injustice, in the, what they perceive as injustice. I mean, do you find yourself now, you know, almost 10 years in that everything that comes across, you look at it comedically. Oh yeah. In a weird, you know, like something as, yeah. as crazy as a, a statement like that. Yeah. I mean, you know, those are the kind of things I look at. Um, but I, I feel like, I don't even feel like I have to look at them. I feel like it's just in me to see them that way. Yeah. You know, like I will go through, we all do this. We go through our Facebook thread and I have my bleeding heart liberal friends who will post things like that. Like if I have to explain to you why a man should be able to marry another man or vice versa, um, you should just kill yourself. And it's just like, could you imagine if Facebook was around in, in 1925 and, and young Adolf was on there going, look, if you don't understand why Aryans are the only race, you should just jump off a cliff. Right, right. It's the same shit. It's this, you know, uh, extremism is an unwillingness to understand things from the opposite perspective, whether you think you're right or not. Yeah. That's what extremism is. And we look at it. I think some of this perspective comes from having a girlfriend who's from the Middle East. And so I immediately look at all that and go, if I were over there and seeing some of the shit we do over here, would I think differently? Maybe not. Yeah. You know, so, um, and, and it's interesting to me to see. Uh, when you put your when you put the shoe on the other foot, so to speak, um, or you look at things from the other side of the table, how you kind of see we're we're all the same. Like our extremism in America is different than the extremism in the Middle East, but it's in many ways it's the same. Yeah, I you mean, know. do you feel this? This sounds sort of like we. A great example would be um, we look at the way people worship Allah and the way that they're willing to kill themselves for what they believe in, and we go, "That's insane. That's sick." But we don't look at the way that girls aspire to be Kim Kardashian in the same way. And it's kind of the same thing. We don't understand it. It doesn't make sense to us. But yeah. one, we go, that's evil. And this one, we go, well, that's okay. She's, you know, she's not the worst thing kids could look up to <laughs> until yeah. she is. Yeah. You know, until girls are killing themselves because they can't get their ass and lips big enough. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely, like, yeah. So it, it, we, we have our own westernized fundamental extremism, but it centers around celebrity and wealth and and being famous and uh and people that don't believe in those things think we're sick and insane people yeah and we look at people who wear rags and like explosives and we think they're sick and insane people right you know what I, I mean, mean do you feel like and this sounds a little heavy-handed but do you feel like you're in a position to affect change with your comedy here's the difference i'm not i don't care no i don't i don't want to affect i don't give a shit if it affects change or not these are just my ideas yeah i think you have to set out with a reasonable expectation that not everyone's going to agree with me not everyone's going to see it the same way my goal is to have like a cool fan base of the people that respect the process yeah i a lot of my closest friends disagree with a lot of my opinions but we have this mutual respect for the process of you get together you talk about things you share your points of view and you might not agree and at the end of the day that's okay because we live on earth together and we have to coexist um that's that's what i want people to do yeah i want people to stop 
believing that their shit is so right, whatever it is, that they're willing to die or kill for it because nothing's that serious. Yeah. Nothing on this planet has to be that serious. We're not going to live long enough for any of those things to matter that much right now. Yeah. You know? And so I don't know. I just, I think, um, my goal is to create a healthy debate. You know, I want people conflicted with themselves when they leave the show. I want them going, boy, I thought I thought this about that, but he raises a lot of good points. You know, that's good. It's sort of like to disarm the, the level at which people care about certain things. They understand just enough about the other point of view that they maybe care less about their point of view. It's chiseling away at a man. Gotcha. You can't do it all at once. There's not a, maybe there is, but I don't think there's a joke out there or a premise or a concept out there where people are just going to convert right away. Right. Right. You know what I mean? Otherwise, well, we have that. It's called organized religion. (laughs) And that's what you would do. If you went up on stage and spoke for 35 minutes and converted everybody in the audience, you're not a comedian. You created a cult. <laughs> you're tax-free at yeah, that point. Yeah, you're, you're a new messiah. <laughs> so I don't want to get to that level. To right, kind of right. roundabout answer your question, that level to me is dangerous and yeah, scary. Yeah. I don't want to get to the level where people devoutly believe everything I say because then you're not a comedian anymore. Right, right. Pretty scary, dude. I used to do a bit where I talked about like, you know, it's possible that Hitler really didn't believe that shit. He might have been the first alt-comic who went on stage and was like, look, I got some real <laughs> (laughs) really funny observations about these Jewish fellas and came off stage and was like, these people are are way too into it. (laughs) Like they're making, they're making the trains, dude. I don't know what to do. (laughs) Like it's just got out. It just got out of hand for him real quick. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? So uh, that, that stuff is funny to me. The (laughs) idea that somebody set out was like, I'm just going to make some humorous observations Next thing you know, he's the ruler of this new world order. Got a good point. And he's just there. like, fuck, I didn't I didn't want any of this. But you know, what <laughs> am I supposed to sitcom? I can't just quit. Yeah, I was trying to get a show. <laughs> I wasn't trying to run the world. Well, this is kind of a weird non segue, but tell me a little bit about uh, March of the Pigs, your your podcast project. Yeah, so the cool thing is is I I we've talked a lot about serious comedy and uh you know there's this other side to my personality that likes just silliness and and having a good time and and i don't drink i don't do any drugs or anything like that i'm pretty corny but i do love food and all of my best memories in life come come from food and i find that eating with people is a great way to kind of break their barriers down and disarm them and get them opening up in ways that they wouldn't so march of the pigs a podcast idea i had to do that to take people to like favorite restaurant spots, you know, in LA of mine or theirs, or if we're on the road, maybe we'll hit a place like Landry and I'll hit a place both of us haven't been to. And we'll talk about that, but it's kind of a good way to just get into things and a good way to kind of make it different and unique to the point where every episode is forced to be different enough to where I don't get bored with it. And you sort of have a good conversation starter. Um, and that goes into the, the TV show I'm working on now too, which is very much like a silly, I'm traveling the country and, showing you different restaurants and shoving my face. And, you know, that's a very different thing than, you know, stand up for me. That's more of a, let's just go have a good time with people and make them laugh and make them have fun. And, and I also have a great appreciation for gluttony because gluttony is kind of one of the last things that we don't, we don't have food interventions for people and we probably should. So to me, it's kind of cool. It's sort of like, in my mind, <laughs> I'm going out and doing drugs right. with the everyone else in the country. It's the last accepted sin, right? Yeah. Um, and it's, by the way, we probably got six months before the vegans take it away from us. <laughs> but to me, that's the fun thing is I can basically go out and eat food and hang out with strangers and meet cool people and, and hopefully 
they buy it. That's <laughs> very cool. I hopefully like they idea. hopefully they order thirteen episodes and we get to keep doing it. But nice, we've done one now and it should be airing sometime in June and and uh, hopefully people will get to see it. Where where can folks find that? It'll be on Travel Channel. Nice. And uh, it's called Ginormous Foods. So yeah, we don't know we don't have an air date yet, but hopefully it'll be sometime in june oh well good for you man Thanks. congrats on that yeah well josh denny it has been a pleasure yeah. i appreciate you taking some time it. out and uh pretty heavy stuff but not at all not fine. at all that's interesting man that's i appreciate fun. it cool. cool well thanks and for having you, me you bet enjoy your uh, week here at loonies i will it should be a fun time all right man thanks thanks so there you have it stand-up comedian josh denny my thanks to josh for taking time out to be on the show and best of luck to him on his upcoming television project as well my thanks to Eric and the great folks at Looney's Comedy Corner for their continued support. And as always, thank you for listening to In the Springs. If you're enjoying the podcast, take a second to post a positive review on iTunes or wherever you consume your podcast media. Until next time, I'm Ryan Lowry, and we'll see you again right here in the Springs. In the Springs.